Hey, Joe. Hello. We're back again. And it's, well, this is, this is, we're in the home stretch. Mm. We're in the home stretch. And boy, there are some big ideas this week. Yes. So last week we read Planned Parenthood against Casey. And then we read a selection about public choice. And so we have dipped our toe into thinking institutionally about courts and the role of precedent and and what it means for a judge to make a legitimate decision and how, you know, you you reference constitutions and statutes and prior cases and how all these things are put together and kind Mm -hmm. of the distinctive mode that courts, you know, um, engage in when they when they do this sort sort of activity. Yep. And then public choice theory helped us to see the the inner workings the nitty gritty of of legislation and that it's you know not just this kind of schoolhouse rock model of you know how a bill becomes a law it passes one house and then another house the president signs of course all that happens yeah but there's an internal political economy and we we talked about that uh, in class as well this idea of a political economy is permeating any institution you can think of there's sure. always going to be a set of incentives and, yep. and other things okay so that sets the stage for well, I don't know. Is that all a big windup? But there, there's another part of the government we haven't covered, and that's administrative agencies in the executive branch, mm. which has become, since the Great Depression and the New Deal response, a huge part of at least the federal government. And you see it in the states as well, right? The, this replication of an administrative structure within the, the states where you get individual agencies charged with a particular area of the economy or a particular Mm -hmm. kind of social problem. They hire experts, or at least they hire people who then become experts because of routine, uh, because of routinely dealing with the same sort of issue. And and they're the ones who formulate fine-tuned policies in response to larger legislative priorities. So that's kind of where we are. Um, And I wanted to talk today in the podcast about the readings that I signed, which kind of went over what the administrative state is, what informal rulemaking is. Did you, by the way, did you agree with my emphasis here? Like if we can't, obviously we can't teach all of that administrative law yeah. in this undergraduate survey class. True. But if you had to kind of pick out one thing that was, you know, that, that was the kind of the signature move of the administrative state, would it be informal rulemaking for you? Yeah. If you could only pick one. Sure. And in formal adjudication, as a as a close second, I think your your summary quite rightly fastened on the fact that although the formal modalities exist, they're very they're they're not used very much because they don't have to be. They, um, they don't have to be, and they're obviously more expensive. I mean, yeah, so they're more burdensome in every way, <laughs> both for the parties involved and for the agencies involved. So they just tend not to be used. And you've taught administrative law, is that right? Uh, I've taught pieces of it. Pieces of it, yeah. So as have I. I've taught legislation, legislation and regulation. regulation. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so you might get the impression that f- that informal rulemaking is just this kind of like people may dash off a couple rules because there's yeah, nothing going on. Right. It, it's not that anybody else would call this extremely formal rulemaking, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point, right? Only in the context of of the sort of framework that the Administrative Procedure Act, this very important statute passed in the mid 1940s. Uh, only in that context would you call this informal rulemaking. And and it's really, a la- it's like knowing someone's name. My name is Joel Miller. <laughs> right. This thing is called informal rulemaking. Uh, you can also more, more, I think, more descriptively call it notice and comment rulemaking. As I indicate in the text as yeah. well. Uh, so this formal, formal rulemaking and formal adjudication, as the court has held, are only required when Congress uses what approaches magic words. You know, you have to make a decision on the record in a public hearing or right. with a hearing. Some, so something indicating a notice and the opportunity to be heard by particular people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, particular elaborate standards go with that, maybe even cross-examination, et cetera. But informal rulemaking is probably what most people intuitively think of when they think of administrative agencies, when they think of the EPA, when they think of Oh, I don't know, the National Labor Relations Board, when they think of other agencies, whether independent agencies or executive um, departments, when they think of the federal government acting and they hear in the news about some action by a federal agency, they're probably hearing about, about informal rulemaking. Yes, and the example that you gave, and I thought it was great that you provided an example, the, the uh, country of origin labeling example with the notice of proposed rulemaking providing a great example, a very concrete example um, of, uh, and a contemporary example of the sorts of things that are involved in rulemaking. Here's the problem. Here's uh, 
a description of the sorts of issues we're trying to tackle, uh, sort of a basic rationale of what we're trying to do. Here's the draft rule that we're considering. Uh, can you please offer us comments on that? And that way people can, whoever they are, and it could be affected businesses, it could be affected customers, it could be uh, all sorts of people, basically whoever knows about it and can comply with the uh, the submission standard, which is very, very easy. They tell you where to send things. And if you send things there, they will be uh, looked at and, and put, and in, the, put can, in the mix of you, all the you things. You can do that, it on the web now. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, lots of uh, public participation. Um, uh, certainly by, by structure. And so calling that informal, I mean, yeah, there's a thing more formal than that. Right. Uh, but it's like calling a suit informal because there's black tie tuxedo. Right. Yeah, true. But most people don't think of in, uh, wearing a suit as informal dress. Yeah, I can think of some, but you know, you don't want to hang out with them. <laughs> uh, I, I guess in thinking about uh, administrative agencies and, and kind of the very first problem that you hit or the very first criticism that you might hear is that, boy, this informal rulemaking, it embraces with a certain amount of frankness the very fact that the executive branch is making law, right? Uh, you know, to the If there's ever, like if you ever wanted to hold on to the fiction that it's the legislature which is writing the laws and it's executive which is doing nothing but executing the legislature's will, right. whatever that may mean. We'll get to that. When you see a kind of like the cool regulate, the notice of proposed uh, yeah. regulation, right. which talks about, uh, you know, why they chose what they chose and the cost benefit analysis and here's what we're doing. Like, you know, there, there's no there, there's no pretense anymore that, that what they're doing is within the zone you know, that they claim they have statutory authority. All that's challenged. Right. Um, but that authority gives them room in which to choose between a number of options. Yeah, I, well, it's interesting that you frame it that way. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that um, that there that there was or needed to be any pretense to begin with. So, so the the, the word execute, right? The executive branch, um, the the take care clause that the president's duty is to faithfully execute the laws, right? What does execute mean, um, other than? Uh, has one specific meaning about putting someone to death. Uh, but the other meaning it has is simply carrying something into, carrying a plan into action, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, plans can vary in their degree of, of generality or specificity. Uh, you know, hey, uh, roommate, can you go shopping uh, and get us the stuff we need for a party? Yeah. And your friend goes to the store and gets, uh, your roommate goes to the store and gets what you need for a party. Maybe you've had parties before, maybe not. Maybe you've had these people over, maybe not. Um, but it's a plan and your roommate is executing on the plan. Now, another thing you could do is write out a shopping list. Here are the specific things you need to make sure you get at the store. Still a plan, still being executed, some more specificity, right? Yeah. So there are plans of varying types and there's carrying plans into action. That's all execution means. I think in, yeah. in, in common speech and I think here too. So, so when the legislature says to the executive, uh, you know, maintain uh, food safety labels that meet certain criteria, right? Yeah. A certain general criteria. Um, uh, okay. Well, that's going to mean a variety of things over time. And to administer the statute, to execute the statute, carry the plan into action, you're going to have to f- fill out some of the details. Well, let's. Uh, yes. So I, I don't. I don't I understand either the pretense yeah. notion in at one level, or or the surprise notion at another. It just it is what it is. This is what administration is. And by the way, well, <laughs> it's been going on. You're right to say the New Deal caused the administrative state to explode. Yeah. But does everyone think George Washington, the first president, was doing absolutely everything in the executive position? It's absurd, right? So administration has been going according on. According to the comic books I've seen, he was. Yeah. <laughs> administration <laughs> has been going on from day one. Right. Yeah. M- many people carrying out plans into action that were stated with varying degrees of specificity or generality. Well, in typical Joe and Christian fashion, this is the second issue that I wanted to talk about with the administrative state. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first issue, which we will bracket and maybe can talk more about in class, is the power of Congress itself. Right. How how much can Congress legislate over what kinds of things can it legislate? And one of the things that loosened in the New Deal was the scope of things that that Congress could target in legislation. Mm. And we can talk about that. Of course, the big case is Wickard against Filburn, which is not included in the readings, which 
unleashes Congress to reach a lot of intrastate, you know, purely local activities, I think for very good reason. And I'm happy to talk about it. But right. but let's bracket that because the second issue that you get to, I think, is interesting. I want to come back to your example of the shopping list. Mm-hmm. There are certain key examples, aren't there, that that people always come back to. It's speed limits. It's no vehicles in the park and shopping list. We'll get to no vehicles in the park next yeah. time. Shopping, have, have the students already seen uh, something with an example, uh, a shopping list example? I don't example? know in this class uh, Bill, Bill Eskridge has, uh, when they did read an excerpt from... And Shapiro, some, of course, from, has an eating club. Uh, yeah, yeah but, but Bill Eskridge is, has, uh, in many of his uh, uh, interpretation uh, pieces, written about um, uh, your slightly different scenario, but it's basically asking your your person who works for you to go to the store and get some stuff. Yeah. So I want to come back to it because I want to come to the second big point of debate, the, mm. the second big controversy, okay. and, and this raises it. So you, you may think that inherent in the idea of directing somebody is giving them some decision-making authority, right? Inherent in the idea of saying, hey, go get us some stuff for the party, is that the person is then going to have to make some additional decisions about what things are included in party getting stuff and, and not party getting yeah. stuff, right? When I, they get I would the think store. what's inherent is allocating between us the, the, what's needed to get it done. Right. And, and it can be, you can like splitting a candy bar, right? You have 50, 50, 60, 40, 90, 10. There's lots of different ways to slice it, but we're going to have to slice it. We're going to have to allocate between us it, the judgment yeah. it takes to get the job done. It, it might even be more complicated than allocation because it may not be possible in advance to predict what you're going to ask the agent to do. So that I, could be quite but true. But let yeah. let's put let's, some specific examples here to, to, to motivate it. At one extreme end of what we could do in this case, if we suppose we're the principal, we could just say, here's a list of things I want you to acquire. Here's the store from which I want you to acquire it. And here's the money to acquire these things. I've already checked to see how much everything costs. That's and a I've lot called, of detail. And I've called ahead to make sure that they're all there, right? right? That's, you are really giving the agent very little discretion Correct. in terms of what to do. So uh, in, in that case, you might think that the, the agent is not free if he or she is a faithful agent to depart from that list or do anything, unless you've said, right? But if you've said, do not depart from this list, I want you to get these things. I'm not even telling you, you shouldn't even worry. Don't worry your pretty little head about why even we, I'm asking you to get these things. They may right. not even know about the party, right? So that's one end. And I gave you just the right amount of money because you knew what the things cost. You added it up. You included the tax, whatever it might be. You get so so. You know this is what you can spend, not a penny more, because you don't have a penny more than you need. You have exactly what you need. First, thing, and you won't spend a yeah. penny less because I know what the total is. So. First thing to note about this extreme example is that all kinds of things can still happen which require decision making by the agent, including car accident on the way there. Uh, in between the time that you called and the, when the agent gets there, they sell out of something. Right. You can't maybe get back in touch with the principal to figure out like what to get. So, When they get to the shelf, maybe one of the items, uh, it, there are several boxes of that item. Some of the boxes look a little dented, some don't. Yeah. Um, which one do you pick? So this is the um, uh, limitation of, of fact and aim that HLA Hart has talked about, right? That we are, as, as he says, we are gods and not, uh, we, we are people and not gods. No, we, notice how I started with we are gods. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we, we are people and not gods and we can't predict the future, nor can we rationally have fixed preferences for everything in the future, right? I mean, you, you got to see how it's going to unfold. Right. So first thing to note, even that extreme example leaves open some discretion for the decision maker in an, in, arising in situations you couldn't have anticipated. So our lack of ability to anticipate right. necessarily, I think, vests execution with some potential for discretion and decision-making. But, okay, so let's leave that extreme version behind. Just, let me, okay, punctuate, yeah, yeah, let me yeah, just yeah. punctuate that in, okay. in the final sense. So, so another way to say what I think you just said, and you'll let me know if I'm right, um, a, a system where, you're, where an agent is executing right, um, with zero... Judgment and discretion is not on offer. That's not one of the possibilities available. Right. So if right. you're approaching this entire project and ask, I want to figure out the way to do it, it, an agency executing uh, with zero discretion and judgment, that's really not possible. Right. I want them to be a computer and I want to hit run on, yeah. and I want them to run the program that I've typed. Right. Yeah. Like no. even there, what happens if the computer is, uh, you know, the power is cut? Right. You know, do you plug Not it back gonna in? Not going to work. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so that's really important to notice. Yeah. That, that uh, because I, but, but, well, I agree with you that that's the case. But even if I didn't, I would want to 
to people to really notice what you just said. I think because I think that's super significant. I I wish you would be around all the time and encourage people to notice what I said, especially, <laughs> especially in my own house. <laughs> uh, so there is. So if we if we aren't that extreme about it, right? We could say, you know, to to the person we're sending, you know, I'm having a party. Here's a list of things I'd want. Can you go out and pick these things up for me? Right. Which obviously gives them more thought. Like, where do they pick them up? Right. Um, if some things are on sale, do they really want those things? Yep. Uh, how Do they want more of these if it's a cheaper price? You can even price? say further, you could say, these are the things that I think I need. Can you get me these things uh, and anything else you think I need? Well, that's... That, and, and if yeah. you don't think these are exactly the right things, just get what you think is right. That's a further step down the chain. Yeah. Right? And you could go all the way down to, I'm having a party. Can you help? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Which is giving the agent a lot of authority. Right. That's not even as extreme as you could get, though. You could just t- look at the agent one day and say, make me happy, <laughs> right? <laughs> Anticipate my needs. Yeah. And one and, could do that. And right? do stuff. Yes. And, and that stuff might include throwing a party and going out and getting things for a party. So right. this activity the agent engages in, going out to the store and buying things for a party, can be as a result of instructions of, of great specificity and almost no specificity, right? There's anything, there, there's everything in between. And a huge debate in administrative law and constitutional law more generally is what kind of discretion Congress should give to the executive in carrying out tasks. And whether, a second question, as we know, whether the court should be charged with enforcing some amount of specificity. So this is called the non-delegation doctrine. Congress cannot constitutionally give too much decision-making authority to, uh, to, to the agencies. That's still the rule, although it is now quite, quite loose. So, and I think the rationale there would be, just in very simple terms, the rationale would be, you know, the Constitution creates a, an executive branch, a legislative branch, a judicial branch, and if the legislature acts a certain way, it's sort of ignoring the fact that there are these three different things. Right. It's slipping the boundary between one and the other. In that right? sense, it flows from the thing which is implicit in the Constitution, but not explicitly stated, the separation of powers, that to give powers to one branch is necessarily to think that another branch should stay out of interfering too much with those powers. Although, as we know, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. A lot right. of ink has been spilled in the pages of right. U.S. reports, the yeah. Supreme Court's opinions about how to deal with those overlaps. And it's explicit overlap as well as implicit overlap, right? So the Senate confirms presidential nominees for, right. for offices. That's an explicit overlap. The president has a veto power, although Congress has an override. That's another explicit overlap. So there are there are overlaps that are explicit, but there are also implicit ones too, right? Uh, and so, again, a thing not on offer, if we're listing things not on offer. Another thing that is not on offer is three hermetically sealed branches that have absolutely no overlap with one another. And, and I do want to distinguish between two kinds of questions here. One is, how should the legis- how much specificity should the legislature provide in pursuing some goal? Like, we might, we might all agree that make me happy is not the kind of statute that they should write. Right. We might when you also ask this question. How much should they provide? Are you you're sort of assume, are, you, are you asking a functional question or a, or a or a question about the the legal standard provided no, 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 by no, the no, Constitution? No. That, that, that's why I said I want to I want to separate two questions, because okay. one question is just kind of a, a question, a normative question about design. Like, what should the legislature do if, if we are legislators, Joe? Right. And we're thinking and we, and we are kind of faithful agents of the Constitution. You know, we, we understand its design, or at least we have our own conceptions of it. Okay, so you How are putting the constitutional precision. constraints in the picture. Yes, but from an, but but a separate question is, if we're judges, what rule do we apply to realize that, or should we? Is this even our question? Like, this seems to be between the legislature and the executive, right? The reason I asked is simply yeah. because, and the last point you made is, I is I think in the spirit of what I was asking is, you could say, um. The Constitution doesn't include a judicially enforceable standard that is an answer to the question, how much specificity should Congress use when it's, when it's giving instructions to the executive? Right. Right. Um, so, so that is actually, I guess, an additional question. Does the Constitution provide a standard judges could enforce about how specific should the Congress be when it's giving directions to the executive? You might think the answer is yes. You might think it is no. Uh, if it is yes, what is it? And and the answer, as of now, is 
Yes, but kind of, right? I mean, the the standard is this... Yes, it's very forgiving. Right. The standard is this intelligible principle standard, that Congress has to articulate an intelligible standard that would guide the executive in the performance of it uh, of carrying out the statute which but sounds this is like quite it, quite we, loose it, it is loose but it, w- w- what i guess one thing that could mean is that at least as a as a matter of possibility um congress can be quite specific if it wants to be uh and qu- quite general if it would prefer that so another way maybe to answer the question how specific should congress be is specific enough to get the job done well given what the job is right like, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I suppose so. We so have- they could pick different levels of specificity and generality now that they've been given a very sort of a very high ceiling under which to act. Yeah. And I, I don't, I'm wondering how much detail to get in here because um, I, I don't want to make things too confusing. But I think Sorry, you're right. My to specialty say- is making things too <laughs> no, confusing. I, no, so. I, th- I, think you're, I think you're right to focus on, on the point, you know, Congress's point. So while we might all agree that it would be too much delegation to the executive to say, you know, executive, make, make us happy. We're the legislature, make us proud. <laughs> Go out and make rules that make us proud. That would be too much. <laughs> right. So too, it would, be, it would be just fine, although hard to imagine possible, if Congress provided the, the, the most extreme example of the list, right? This, um, here's the list, here's where I want you to buy this stuff, here's how much we want you to pay. If this, if this happens, then that. If there's a car accident, then that. And you try to, right. like, at some point you got to stop and there's got to be some delegation. Right. So something about, like, we want to have a party for the following purposes. Congress go out, I mean, uh, executive go out and, and buy the materials necessary for this party, right? Necessary and proper for this party or something like that, right? And then the, the executive engages in some rulemaking to find out, like, what... I'm, I'm clearly smashing a metaphor against reality here, but okay. you, you understand what I mean. And another great thing about our party example is because it involved money. Um, so, so, so part of what's going on in your, in your discretion and your specificity that you're giving the person who's going to execute the plan is how much money you give them to execute the plan. Right. That's part of the plan, right? It has, and it has implications for what they can do. So another thing Congress has to do is, and it is uniquely empowered to do this, is decide how much to spend yeah. and give instructions that this is the amount of money you can spend on this, right? Right. Um, so if they say throw a party, here's a $10 bill, you get no more, right? Throw a party, here's my checkbook. The balance in the account is X. Spend however much of it you need to spend. Totally different party, <laughs> right? And, Depending and, on who answers the And the, the other checkbook. thing Congress does is, is, you know, as the party is being prepared for and after it's thrown, they will call the party planners before it. I mean, we are really riding this metaphor, aren't we? But, yeah. but <laughs> they, uh, there will be congressional hearings, which can be unpleasant. Uh, you can't, you know, if, if you sure. messed up. So yeah, the so after action review on this party is going to be for real. <laughs> right. Uh, I just wanted to make the point that another way to send a message about how you want a person to carry out a plan is when you allocate a set of resources to them and they, and they look at that set of resources and they hold it up against the other instructions you've given them. There's a yeah. message even in the comparison of those two things. And yes, and I want to emphasize that the, the reason for bringing all this up is to suggest that your, your kind of ultimate democratic theory here is going to drive your intuitions about this, about how much specificity is required. Right. So if you care most about direct electoral accountability, you'll be concerned with Congress kind of kicking down the road the details for the agency. Now, this we discussed in our last class about public choice, right, that that in a kind of conflictual demand pattern where there are sharp interests on both sides, Congress has an incentive to write ambiguous statutes and basically pass the buck on hard decisions to agencies. There are other patterns where this occurs, right? And, and so maybe what you don't want from a public choice perspective is Congress to do that, to pass the buck, to, um, to muddy the waters, to make it less clear who's responsible for what. Like that's one theory. This is, as we'll see with statutory interpretation and constitutional interpretation, that's also Justice Scalia's theory, right, that what you want most and above all are clear lines of accountability. This is the decision maker who made this decision. And anything that kind of gets in the way of that gets to be more difficult. Now that said, the administrative state itself and the Administrative Procedure Act provide kind of an alternative form of accountability. And in a way, as, we, as you see from the notice of proposed rulemaking and the whole process of notice and comment, the possibility of democratic participation is, well, 
compared to like, you know, what is my influence with my members of Congress and or certainly my senators, it seems to be pretty, pretty weak, right? I mean, you can write letters, you can call and mm-hmm. maybe you can acquire constituent services pretty easily because that's low cost. You can get staffers to do that. But in right. terms of impacting pieces of legislation and, and particular points of legislation, like there's, I guess there's the notice and comment form on your congressperson's website that you can fill out. But there's not an obligation that they explain their reasoning. There's nothing like, I mean, although sometimes, I mean, you, sometimes you can have CBO reports, you can have, um, you can have floor debates. Sometimes things are elaborated in Congress, but there's no requirement like there is with uh, cost-benefit analyses and in right. notice of post- proposed rulemakings. And so the, the the administrative state itself, including this kind of robust comment requirement that the agency have to explain its position that it has to engage in certain kinds of analyses and that it's subject to a more searching judicial review than is, than is Congress. Right. All those combine maybe to create a kind of policymaking apparatus, which is more responsive to the public than is the legislature, which you could study and, and find out that maybe is actually not responsive at all to the median voter. Right. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? I think that is uh, an excellent hunch. <laughs> But, you know, there is this concern, right? We don't vote for the Secretary of Agriculture. We don't, much less the Undersecretary of this or the head of the right. Bureau of Land Management. Or, Although we do, I mean, we do vote uh, for, um, well, uh, the, the, the person who appoints those people stands for election. Uh, that's the president. Um, the persons who pass on those uh, nominations, senators, they stand for election. Uh, House members don't get to vote on confirmation, but they do get to hold oversight hearings of various types uh, and get to engage in the appropriations process. In fact, have to initiate the appropriations process in the House. Um, so, so I think there's, if your model is, are there various points of electoral accountability that create pressures and influences? The answer is obviously yes. Yeah. Even in the agency context, right? Um, now, why do it at all? Uh, why do all this agency stuff? Well, I would think a big part of the reason is to bring expertise to bear. That a- agencies, because of their focus and, and resources and attention, can engage in a kind of development of e- uh, expertise and a deploying of that expertise that we think makes us better off. If it doesn't make us better off, we should stop. So well, in I mean, reviewing, I guess, in, level, in reviewing right? drugs or pollution, I can have PhDs in biomedical science rather than whoever happens to be on a congressperson's staff doing this sort of thing. Right, or, or whoever happens to run for Congress, him or herself. Right. Um, you know, the, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, which has been around, it was created as a part of the, in the general New Deal era that you mentioned. Right. Um, Regulating, you know, among other things, the broadcast spectrum, you know, radio sure, stations, so, TV stations, right. cable. R- radio technology, television technology, uh, telephone technology, uh, uh, last many years playing a role in uh, the, the sort of open internet uh, uh, rules of the road. Um, a lot of the people who work for the FCC have expertise in the various telecommunications technologies that we were just listing, right? So, you know, getting those people together and getting them to focus on a problem and f- coming up with various ways to solve the problem, given policy priorities that have been set forth for them by, by Congress, um, you know, is Congress itself going to do that? Not clear, uh, but very unlikely. I mean, it's not, it's not clearly impossible, but it just doesn't seem particularly likely. Yeah, more likely that, that, they would want if if you were designing a system from the ground up and and you knew that Congress people would would not be permanent fixtures within the legislature. Maybe even want them to turn over often. Perhaps that's what you want, and you want them to be true representatives of the people of the people. You you might want them to be able to say, you know what, we want safer drinking water, and therefore I want this group of PhDs to study, you know, what chemicals are harmful and to do this and to write rules that accomplish the following objective. I want, you know, kids to be able to drink this water and, and not get cancer, right? Uh, within, within certain bounds. I mean, I want to, you know, within a certain margin of safety and maybe I can specify that to some degree, but 
but like you figure out what, whether there can be toluene in the water and how much. I mean that sort right. of thing, right? Well, yeah, because because there is an answer to get there is an answer to get there is a there is a basic right and wrong of it within a margin of error, and uh, it is important that it be right. Yeah. Well, there are a few other questions about the administrative state at a at a macro level that that we won't deal with now because I want to turn to the last one. But there are things like, should the president be able to fire at will anybody in the executive branch? This is the question of how unitary the executive branch should be. How, how much policymaking authority should the president have vis-a-vis other actors? Should there, be, should there even be independent agencies? And the answer is there are independent agencies. They are insulated from the president. Uh, they, some, some heads of agencies can only be fired for good cause. Some have a statutory mandate to maintain a certain partisan balance. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of vehicles by which Congress has tried to insulate some public bodies, some which are executive in nature, from direct control by the president, including the Federal Election Commission, I mean, these kinds of things, right? Yep. So that's a separate question because there are people who think that the, the, that, that that disrupts the lines of accountability and that even though you might think that insulation uh, it, it creates independence and independence is always good, maybe accountability is more important. And the, the one person that the public has the power to hire and fire is not the commissioner of the FEC, but the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of debate. But I want to turn to Chevron, Mm. which is maybe, maybe the biggest deal in administrative law. What would you think? What would you say? If you had to say, what's the biggest deal in other than the the right answer is the new deal. But if we take the new deal off the table, what's the biggest deal? Chevron and its progeny. It's funny. uh, A a person I know uh, from the other law school I used to work at, uh, and who is uh, 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 older, been a law professor for a long time, uh, was was active in an administrative law teacher and active in the field for a long time, um, told me, and I had no reason to, to doubt him, um, when Chevron was decided, it wasn't perceived as that big a deal. Huh. Uh, it was perceived as sort of a ho-hum, like not a significant, not a major sort of administrative law principle, which is simply a way of saying, at least from his point of view, that um, it, it kind of restated a settled idea about how courts should treat administrative agency work product when it comes to interpreting statutes. Yeah. And I mean, which so all we've talked about so about. far, I mean, so you, you might think, you know, let's separate this from the non-delegation concern. Right. So going back to the example of the party, Okay. We, we've asked, like, what is it okay, in other words, as a, as a, as a conscientious legislature, legislator or maybe even as a court looking at legislative delegation, what's okay for Congress? How, how general can it be? You know, can it say, go out and buy stuff for the party, right? Or does it need to provide a list? That's the kind of question you might ask with delegation. What does it have to do? The Chevron question is different, though. It's saying, assume that Congress has said something, right? So maybe they even provided a list. And maybe on that list was cheese, right? So buy some, buy, buy some, you know, buy some salsa, buy some chips, buy some cheese, buy some avocados, uh, buy some olives. Boy, it sounds like a good party, doesn't it? Mmm, cheese. Yeah, buy some guacamole. Uh, <laughs> and it just says cheese on it. And the person who goes out to buy all this stuff comes back with all the items on the list and a big tub of cottage cheese. Mmm. Hmm. Party got a little less fun. <laughs> well, so someone, maybe one of the party goers, uh, the people coming to the party and who had to spend some money to get there. And, you know, otherwise it's like, you know, I, I invested a lot in coming to this party and it's, there's a big tub of cottage cheese and I'm upset about this. I'm going to sue. Okay. <laughs> Are we carrying this metaphor too far? I you think, think so. <laughs> I think it officially arrived at too far. <laughs> there's no actual shark jumping in the metaphor, but. <laughs> So, so the issue is like, we, we could certainly say that, you know, you could criticize the person for buying cottage cheese. Boy, the, the agent here made a really bad decision, should have bought this other kind of cheese. Or at least a surprising one, right? Yeah, because the other things on the list, um, what parties are usually like, uh, right. what, what, uh, but that, that have happened in the past, 
uh, who's likely to be there, or what, right, you, the, or what you think that the principal actually wanted. It, right. Well, of course, all of those things bear on what one thinks the principal actually wanted. If right. the principal didn't say, when I said cheese, I meant this kind of cheese and not, not that kind of not cheese. Not that kind right? of cheese. You, and, and, you know, you can play the game. Well, why didn't you say more about the cheese? Right. Well, because you could have always, you, you can always play that game on in both directions. You could have been more specific about the cheese. Um, fair enough. I also could have been more general about it. Mm-hmm. Right. I could have said, you know, something to to make nachos or, you know, and, and then it could they could have come back with yet a thing that wasn't cheese at all. Right. So, so, yeah. So here's the thing everybody agrees on. The principal seeing this happening can always say, go back to the store and get some cheddar cheese true. or go back to the store and get some Monterey Jack. Like right. you and do- get the kind you, that's shredded already because right. I don't want to shred it when you get back. You dope. Go back again. And what's more, I'm paying you less next year. Like, can cut the budget. We can call you before. <laughs> like, I can call you into a meeting, say, right. why in the world did you get this kind of cheese? Yeah, this there's always stupid. another iteration. Uh, yeah, I can. So everyone agrees that Congress can do this, right? That 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 is a remedy for that kind of right. failure of the agent. Or Congress can say, gosh, actually. You helped me see something new about a possibility I didn't realize, and the cottage cheese was a huge hit. <laughs> and that, so I want you to have even more dairy flexibility, <laughs> right? So, so just you know, make something with lactose. That's next year's instruction. That's also possible, right? You can learn things, and you can give. There's always another right. round. That's that's true. In the instruction fun to be had. <laughs> the the Chevron question though is. If the person, if, if a party goer sues, can the agent say, can the agent say, um, this was my instruction, this is how I interpreted it, it's a reasonable interpretation, the end. Or does the court say, you know what, every time you get an instruction, ultimately what that instruction means is up to us, because we're the court, right? right. You can do what you want. And we hope that you do it well, that you're the executive. You're, you have to do things. Yeah. But but like we are the referee here. Yeah. Right? There's a best answer and you'll always get to it me. from us and always from us. Right. And only from us. That's right. right. Uh, ultimately, it's our choice, not yours as the executive. So I hope that with these metaphors, people are seeing how, you know, maybe they're confusing things. But I think it's making it, I think it's bringing more, more heat, heat than light, right? Yeah. Uh, that... It's true that to carry out any instruction involves some discretion and decision making. And so we have to ask this further question about like, is that final, right? So long as it's like reasonable, like if a court just disagrees with what you did, can we make you go back and do it again? Or can we order damages or can we do something else, right? Right. And so this is the Chevron question. Congress passes a statute. The statute is ambiguous. And... Am- ambiguity, and it's often used in Chevron analysis. Like, if the statute's ambiguous or there's a gap in it, then then mm-hmm. then the leg- then the agency can kind of fill that gap or right. can but choose. That's the conventional way to state. But there's also way. vagueness, right? And ambi- ambiguity and vagueness are two different kinds of terms. True. Am- ambiguous is usually used to refer to a term that has two different senses to it. Like um, an example, I always have heard is tense. Right? Tense can refer to like the um, kind of the the, the the temporal meaning of a verb, right? Mm-hmm. Present tense, past tense, but it mm-hmm. also can refer to like, you know, the state of your muscles, right? Are they, are they tense or not? Or relaxed, right. 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 Or, or just your general state of being, right? All of these are different senses of the right. word tense. Whereas the word- Another ta- example, a more homely example yeah. would be the sign, keep off the grass. Is that a sign about not smoking marijuana or is it a sign about <laughs> not walking on the turf? Okay. Right. And and it means both those things, and you and context would probably tell you which one was being referred to in a given instance. But it does. You could use that probably, to probably, say, but not yeah, always. Yeah, I mean, true. There, there are times when the ambiguity really. Well, I don't know what you meant by this. It could have, could have been either one, right? right. Uh, a word like tall is a word which is vague, or at least can have vague applications, meaning that one person's tall is another person's short, yeah. or one person's tall is another person's regular. So, if you say, "Boy, that person is tall." And they are five ten. Um, well, certainly, like in sixteen hundred, you would have been right in almost every instance. But you know, it would be a weird way to refer to someone standing among a basketball team, right? Right. But it would be a perfectly valid application, or you know, everyone would agree that was the right word to use among a group of, say, second graders. Now, some of those relative terms are such that I mean, you could say they have a fuzzy boundary, or you could say there it's all fuzz. 
right? There is yeah. no, <laughs> there actually is no boundary. It's just a, it's a comparator. So it's always contextual deeply and, and hmm. to the bottom. To use Hart's phrase, it's all penumbra, no core. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Um, and there are vague words that are, that do seem to have a core, but have a fuzzy boundary. Okay. So there are different ways in which Congress can be unclear. It can be ambiguous. It can be vague. It can leave gaps where it just doesn't say anything. Right. And it, it can explicitly delegate, you know, let uh, agency figure out what is safe in this instance and tell us right there. It's, you know, it's not as though it's prescribed something which is, you know, which it, you know, you might've thought it, it was deciding, but in fact, you look at it and you say it's vague. So we don't know what you meant. We know exactly what they meant. They meant for right. the agency to decide this yeah, thing. Explicit right? delegation versus implicit delegation, exactly. which is how you might treat vagueness and ambiguity. And by the way, if you take seriously your point about Hart's observation that we are people, not gods, um, your, your, your hunch might be um, not that Congress will often be uh, vague or ambiguous, but as to certain fact patterns, it will always be vague and ambiguous. There isn't anything, there is no such thing as a statute that is completely free of vagueness and ambiguity. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So if you insist on getting one, you're asking for the impossible. But you can, you know, it's all a matter of degree. Of course. Right? So again, it's like how specific does the instruction to the agent going to pick up items for the party need to be? Right. And to the extent that it does, like, so this statute, the one at issue in Chevron, which... um, Was it stationary sources? Yeah. So it requires a permit for uh, the construction and operation of new or modified stationary sources of air pollution. Mm -hmm. And the issue here is... Does that mean that any time uh, a plant, a, a, a pollution-emitting plant, puts up a new smokestack, it's got to get a permit for that? Well, what if the while putting up a new smokestack, it took away some other stuff? And so as a unit, it doesn't emit any additional air pollution, maybe even less. Right. Does it need a permit for that? In other words, do we put kind of a bubble over the whole factory and we just ask, is there is there new pollution coming out of this factory? Right. Or is it for each you know new smokestack or each new... Um, machine in there that we have to get permits if it's a new source of air pollution. And these these different facts about what could happen bring to light the fact that stationary source, the phrase, has an interesting question built into it about the level of generality or granularity with which you intended it to be taken, Mm -hmm. which you might not have realized when you first saw it. But when you learn more about how these factories are constructed and modified over time, suddenly you're presented with the question, huh, individual emitting item within the factory or factory as a whole yeah so what what do we do the you know this is congress has sent the epa to the store and told it to, to you know i'm going to mix these things way up prepare we the mix? clean air party <laughs> right and this is you know they can take different approaches and so what the court does in chevron is it says you know what the the agency gets to decide this the agency gets to decide this within reasonable bounds so the court states it in the negative, right? If Congress right. has been clear and unambiguous, that's the end of the matter. Congress has authority, right. right? So if on the list it says don't get any cheese and you come back with a tub of cottage cheese, you know. Different kind of problem. Might be a different kind of problem. It still may be hard, you know, is it cheese And so or if not, Congress but, had said, uh, as used here in the phrase, stationary source means, and then uttered another sentence right. that that made the difference between a bubble around the whole factory or an individual smokestack, you got to use that definition. The agency isn't free to disregard it. And they even say they have this line, if the intent of Congress is clear, that is the end of the matter for the court as well as the agency must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. This is in Chevron. Notice the emphasis there on intent, which we'll talk about next time when we talk and about statutory interpretation. interpretation. Yeah. And the right. interpret, like, what does it mean for Congress to be clear? You might have some serious arguments about that. Right. But for now, I think it's enough to observe that, that the court concluded that when Congress is clear, because it has authority, and that comes from the Constitution, and this is very, I would say this is the least controversial part of any of this, right? That mm-hmm. Congress has the authority to make policy, at least where it has that authority, right. <laughs> meaning within the Commerce Clause and other powers granted to it by the Constitution. The agency is not free to depart from that, right? So if, if, if they say... Nor is the court. Right. So if everyone agrees that, that something is a new... Or, or modified stationary source, the agency is not free just to say, yeah, but we just don't think it's a good idea in this case for other reasons. Like Congress has told you to, to regulate in that. So you can't write a rule that creates exceptions that aren't there if it's clear that Congress didn't mean for you to write those exceptions. And and the court, as you point out, is also not free to do that, right? That 
I hesitate as soon as I say these things because you and I are both thinking of a hundred different counterexamples right, to this, right? right? But but I think in, in general that holds up, right? That Congress mm-hmm. has authority and it is the responsibility and, and duty of courts to respect that authority. Yeah, assuming as no it constitutional is, defect. That's right. Yes. So Chevron step one, as they say, is, is the statute ambiguous? It's called step one. You'll hear this often. And if it's ambiguous within the broader meaning of ambiguous, meaning that there is some gap that Congress has not filled, either because it has used a word which is unclear and whether it means one of two or three or four things, or if it has used a vague word where, where people could fill it up differently, or if it has left a gap, or if there's an explicit delegation, right? Right. Uh, so instead of ambiguous, you could say, you know, is, is it um, explicitly or implicitly delegated to the agency to figure out what to do? Well, that, <laughs> if the answer is no, yeah. then you do what the statute says to do because it hasn't been delegated explicitly or implicitly. The answer is yes. Then you would ask, well, what did the agency do and is it reasonable? All right. So there has to be another part to this because it can't just be enough that we say, because um, we could ask about the shopping list, right? Is it, is it ambiguous? So I say cheese. There are a lot of, you know, that, I don't know if it's ambiguous, but it's certainly vague because there are many different kinds of cheese, right? So we say, yes, okay. Well, what do we do with that? One thing we could say, well, when it's vague or ambiguous, then the agency is free to do whatever it wants. And so the fact that they came back with cottage cheese is fine. If they come back with, uh, oh, I don't know, a tomato, right? And they said, well, cheese is ambiguous. And so we came back with a tomato. Yeah. Uh, okay, that should we do that? Should we allow that, or should we say, wait a minute? Under anyone's conception of cheese, this is not that, right? So, right. Uh, so you you've not been a faithful agent exercising the discretion that that kind of ambiguous or vague term gives you. So this is Chevron step two. The court says that just because there is this gap or uh, this this gap in meaning does not mean that the agent can do whatever it wants. The agency has a responsibility to be a faithful agent, which they realize by saying that the agency's interpretation will be upheld when it is permissible, or sometimes they use the word reasonable. Yet again, you know, the word reasonable, yet again, making it into the law, right? So, uh, so, so the, the agency faced with an explicit or implicit delegation through some gap or some explicit instructions, you know, asked to go out and do something, has authority to fill that gap, but the court will only uphold it if that gap filling is reasonable. But that said, if the court says, you know what? Writing on a clean slate, we would have we would have come out the other way here. Like we would have we would have uh, written a completely different rule than you wrote. You know, the best thing, all things considered, would have been for you to buy this kind of cheese. That's what we conclude, and therefore that's what you should have done. Or all things considered, the best answer would have been to use the bubble rule, not the individual smokestack rule. Therefore, that's what you should do. Yeah, that's a very different approach. Instead of asking, is what the agency did within the zone of reasonable answers, given that there is the ex- explicit or implicit delegation? Now, why? Why should they do this? And, and why should he, who do what? The court. Do what? <laughs> I'm about to get to that. I'm about to get to that. Uh, so why should they conclude that this, this step one and step two analysis is the right way to kind of police from the court's perspective this issue of delegation vagueness, the, 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 the kind of irreducible fact that an executive carrying out some task is going to have to make some decisions. How should the court treat those decisions that it makes? How should the court, a court treat our agent party shopper, right? How, how should they treat this? And the court has concluded in Chevron that it engages in this two-step analysis. First of all, finding out was the zone of authority there because of ambiguity, vagueness, et cetera. Step two, have they exercised that authority within that zone reasonably? Have they made a permissible construction of the statute? If so, we will uphold their construction of the statute, their interpretation, whether those are different, put it to one side, despite the fact that we might have come out differently had we been looking at this in the first instance. That is Chevron. Mm-hmm. And I just want to be really clear about that. That's what we mean by step one and step two. Yep. So all kinds of writing on this. There are people who say there's really no step two. It's all one step. Fair um, enough. And because if you think about it, maybe maybe it really is. And we haven't even mentioned step zero. We haven't even mentioned step zero, which is like, <laughs> you know, maybe not every agency interpretation should be, should get this kind of deference. Like maybe only when the agency acts in a kind of, when it acts in a formal way, although that word formal is laden with all kinds of, you know, as we know in admin law. Okay, so that's, that's it. And, and the court, so why should it choose this? And the court 
talks about expert, the relative expertise is the, of the agency is driving this, right? So, um, it's a mix of expertise and political accountability, right? In terms of the court's rationale. Well, yes. Yeah, so it says, hey, let me just read this and, okay. and we can wind it up with this. Judges are not experts in the field and are not part of either political branch of the government. Courts must, in some cases, reconcile competing political interests, but not on the basis of the judge's personal policy preferences. In contrast, an agency to which Congress has delegated policymaking responsibilities may, within the limits of that delegation, properly rely upon the incumbent administration's views of wise policy to inform its judgments. While agencies aren't directly accountable to the people, the chief executive is, and it's entirely appropriate for this political branch of the government to make such policy choices. So, as you say, it is a mixture of expertise and accountability, but that accountability, of course, is a derivative of the accountability of the president, the chief, the chief executive, sure. which we've already talked about as being maybe somewhat a weak signal. Yeah. Right? And congressional oversight and, yeah. Well, all the other, they don't mention that, but all the other things are... Electoral yes, accountability exactly. is... Right. It's, it, the branch is other than the judicial branch. <laughs> so this has engendered, over the years, a lot of controversy. I would say more so recently. I mean, mm-hmm. Chevron has been a, I think, a, a stabilizing influence in American law. How, whether it's been applied consistently, and people are studying that, including people at our law school. Right. Very and interesting stuff about this. you contrast the Supreme Court's use of the the framework versus lower courts use of the framework right it it does help dispose of a lot of cases where there would be close you know issues yep. of statutory interpretation they say well they chose this we can't say it's unreasonable therefore uphold we don't get into exactly what it means which means that when the agency goes through the work and you saw in the notice of proposed rulemaking for the the cool regulations the country of origin labeling things a lot of work goes into that by the way, this, this is, is going to be upheld. This is a this is another reason why you might choose this rule that you just you just said it. Um, if if you think there are benefits to having the agent engage in reason reasoned analysis and reasoned decision making, you might choose the Chevron rule as a way to encourage them to engage in it. Yeah, um, that because if if the alternative is look, just come ask us and we'll give you the right answer. Yeah. Well, then why would an agency invest a whole lot of time or energy or effort into figuring out the best answer? That's that's yeah, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. Right. That that it encourages that kind of analysis precisely because it's not all going to be for naught. Right. Yeah. You get to show it and you get to use it and say, see, it is reasonable to interpret it in this way or some other ways, too. This is the one we picked. Um, and, and you will ratify that as a court under the Chevron approach. Assuming we had the flexibility, assuming there was a, a space within which to do that. Sure. So one thing we'll talk about in class is Judge Gorsuch's kind of remarkable concurrence mm. in, to his own opinion. He's not the only judge who does this. My judge used to yeah. was was known for doing this, right? Writing a this majority. This is a opinion. bit of a barn burner. Um, as, <laughs> as someone who also worked for a federal appellate judge, this yeah. is a bit of a Jeremiah ad. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and is a little unusual, maybe a lot unusual in that regard. Yeah, and, and, and I want to emphasize a couple of things before we have the conversation about this, because he raises, I think we have all the tools in place now, including non-delegation, accountability, yeah. public choice theory, yep. really to, to get a lot out of this opinion. Yep. But I, I want to emphasize that you know, he's a conservative justice now, but this is not a, a necessarily a, a, a pure liberal conservative divide, because Justice Scalia of course, was one of Chevron's great advocates, mm-hmm. right? On an accountability theory. Yeah, as Chevron itself articulates. And partly because Scalia recognizes that the interpretive choice here is not between doing what Congress wanted and giving agencies the power to make law unaccountably. It's between whether the executive or whether an executive agency or a judge interprets ambiguous text of, con- of Congress, right? Right. And as between those two, Scalia favored the executive agency. But we can, we'll talk more about that in class. Do you, do you have any like parting words, thoughts that we should carry into our classroom discussion, Joe? No. No. Do you think this is, uh, do you agree with Gorsuch? No. Okay. We'll leave it at that. (laughs) 